Hi, my name is Dan Sutton, and uh, I lost my wife, Brenda, in 2016. And um, I signed up for Grief Share uh, to help me get through my loss. And without Grief Share, um, I'm not sure what I would have done. Um, the sadness, the loneliness was just horrific. And what I learned is, is that there's hope. And, and Jesus is, is that hope, and he will stand by you and get you through it. But this program's been an excellent way to learn that. Hi, my name is Mark Hammond. I'm a facilitator with the Grief Share Group here at Friends Church. Um, my late wife uh, passed away in 2012, and uh, the Grief Share program was uh, very important to me. Just the tips and uh, knowledge that I, I learned, um, the camaraderie of the other people in our group, um, it just uh, really hit home and uh, helped me through uh, a time where I was really struggling. My name is Josie Brovac, and um, I started going to Grief Share in September for this session. and um, and. This has been probably the hardest thing that I've ever experienced. Um, both her being sick and then her passing and being without her, and then my brother being sick. At looking back at the pattern that was there, how God was saying, I wanna heal you, but you have to participate. I'm not surprised that life is difficult. I am surprised at how um, unwilling I was to move forward um, and this has been a great tool to help me move forward and be encouraged um, and I think just getting in God's word even if it's like a snippet um, every day has been helpful. <laughs> Those were a few interviews from our Surviving the Holidays event with our Grief Share, Grief Support Ministry. I'm very grateful for this ministry. It's meant so much to so many different people. They will be restarting here in the new year. So if that struck a chord with you, I invite you to sign up for that so you can have space in order to lift up your own grief and to help gain helpful tools and language as you navigate uh, that grief. Around the holidays, it's especially important for us to recognize that as much as it is a time of celebration and joy and singing and laughter and toys and candy and pie and more pie, uh, it's also a time of sorrow for many people. It's, and it's not just a time of sorrow for people that have recently entered into a stage of grieving. For many people, it's not as, the, as if the grief goes away, actually returns around the holidays because it is that returning reminder of the loss that people do have and, and experience. Uh, author and theologian C.S. Lewis went through his own grief and he has a book called The Grief Observed by, uh, after he lost his wife. And I love how he says it here uh, in his book. He says, Part of every misery is, so to speak, the misery shadow or reflection, the fact that you don't merely suffer but have to keep on thinking about the fact that you suffer. 
I not only live each endless day in grief, but live each day thinking about the living, living each day in grief. And that captures sometimes what people are experiencing over the holidays. And so it's critical for us as much as we come here to celebrate and uh, as Seth said, have a sense of anticipation, it's important to recognize the people that are in the midst of, of grief as we do that. Advent, the word Advent comes from the uh, Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. And as again, as Seth said, this is a time of anticipation, of vigilance, because just as the people, the Jews in the first century were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, we have a promise from Jesus himself that he will return to accomplish the purposes of God on this earth, that his kingdom will come in its fullest sense and we will stand victorious over all of the ills and tragedies and terrors that we face in this world. And it is, a, it, it is something that we excite ourselves over, celebrate over, and remain vigilant over during this time. And so we're reminded of that as we enter and as we anticipate Christmas Day in the season of of Advent. And because it's a time of anticipation and waiting and vigilance, one of the main themes that you hear about and we talk about during this time is hope. Many people call it the season of perpetual hope. And I love that. I was reminded of this when I was watching uh, one of my son's favorite Christmas movies, Home Alone. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit. There's no spoiler. If you haven't watched it by now, there's something wrong with you, okay? But everybody knows the story, right? Kevin McAllister, he was a, a kid. He was an ornery kid. Um, we have to remind our son, people, we don't talk like that <laughs> whenever we watch that, that movie. But he finds himself home alone. The whole family travels to France. His mom realizes it. and She is distraught. I mean, she is in crisis and completely beside herself. And she's trying to catch a flight all the way back to the United States. And of course, around the holidays, all of the flights are, are booked up and she is frantic. And she says at the counter when she's getting constant rejection from the, from the stewardess, from the person trying to book the flights, and she says, this is a season of perpetual hope. And sometimes it can feel that way for us. As much as we proclaim this is a time of hope we do so, we say so almost over and against the, the crisis that we're feeling in our hearts. And so it's important to recognize that. Especially because the first Christians, they also were addressing hope in the same way. Uh, throughout the season of Advent, we're gonna be looking in the book of Romans chapter five. So if you wanna turn there, I invite you to do so. If some, saw some of you brought your Bibles in with you, there are Bibles there in the pews in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, take one of those home with you. We'd love for you to have a Bible. And we're gonna be camping out in Romans chapter five, verses one through five, uh, as Paul, the apostle, as the early church leader, writes a letter to the Romans, and he has a particular phrase and a particular uh, formulaic phrase that he offers in regards to this theme of hope, almost as if it's a journey of hope um, that we're gonna be following over these next a few days. And as you turn there, I want to give you the snapshot of what we're looking at here. Remember that the book of Romans is a letter, and so it's like we get to read someone else's mail here. Paul is sending this letter to the Romans uh, who are under particular duress. Now, all of the uh, Christians in that day, there's a rising hostility to Christianity, uh, rise in, in, in uh, persecution for the faith. 
Um, but this was particularly so in the, in the city of Rome. Sometimes we forget that the Romans, that the significance of where these people are living and where they have planted a church in that day. You see, it was 41 AD after Jesus' birth, just 41 AD when uh, the emperor of Rome had jettisoned all of the Jews uh, uh, that were uh, living in the city there. So there's already this pre-existing hostility towards the faith. And so uh, in all throughout the Greco-Roman world, it just began to, to ramp up from there. And in the mid, to the point where in the mid-50s, there was a new emperor at the age of 16 became emperor, Emperor Nero. And we, many of you know that, that name. He's infamous for being host, hostile towards the Christians and uh, performing great persecutions. Uh, uh, the famous uh, Roman fire is one of them where he set a portion of Rome on fire to just to blame all the Christians uh, to ramp up the per- persecution uh, against them. This letter was written um, in, the, in uh, the late 50s, so just um, after the reign of Nero, um, in the middle of the reign of Nero. So you can imagine that the tension is beginning to rise as the hostility towards the faith is also rising. And so in his letter, uh, chapter five is actually a significant shift in, in the way Paul is writing to the Christians. He almost gets theological, almost a little preachy here, but really, uh, an, uh, really a jewel of a text here in chapter five, verses one through two. It says this, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, since we have been made righteous by God's declaration through the blood of the Lamb, that is Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, we now have peace with God through Jesus, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We stand on that grace that has gained us access into Jesus And we boast, we gloat, we celebrate in the hope of the glory of God. I could stop right now and say, let's go home with that. I mean, that that preaches on its own. It is so filled with celebration and glory. It gives everything that we need as, as believers in Jesus Christ. But then Paul goes on. He offers a qualifier. He offers an example of what this boast really looks like. And so he says in verse 3, just after that, he says, not only that, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Think about how backwards that statement is. Think about how counterintuitive that statement is. In the first century, there have been centuries long of a belief system, a belief structure about suffering. And we read it throughout all of the scriptures. The book of Job captures this perfectly. That people believed that their suffering was a direct result of punishment by the hand of God for the sins that they have committed. Many of you know the story of Job. Job had extreme calamities upon him. There was no, no example of suffering than this person of Job. And so his friends, who begin to offer support, quickly turn on him and begin to offer a spiritual diagnosis. Well, something must have gone wrong, Job. 
You must have done something to deserve this. God must be punishing you for something that you did. Now let's examine your life. Let's go through all the details. Let's bring out all the skeletons of your closet and take a look at all of this just to see maybe God has an issue with something you and that is the reason for your suffering. We see this even in the New Testament. Jesus is traveling with his disciples. We read in John chapter nine. And his disciples see a man over there that was born blind. And they ask Jesus, well, okay, so who sinned? Who, how, how did this person, how was he born blind? That doesn't happen on its own. God must have done it. And if God did it, he did it for a reason. And that reason must be that someone sinned along the way. Was it him or was it his parents? So we see this superstition even, this belief system around suffering. And all of that changes. For centuries this was going on, but all of it changes in Jesus. All of it shifts in Jesus. Because now sufferings are the benchmark of faith. Now, sufferings are the, 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 the watermark of what it means to be a child of God because Jesus also suffered. When we suffer, we enter into the suffering of Jesus Christ. But, but praise be to God, Jesus' victory is also our victory when he rose from the grave. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. And this is the beginning of Paul's message of hope. He goes on, and this is gonna be the theme of our, uh, of our next four weeks. We're gonna follow Paul's progression that leads to hope. He says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. We're gonna address all of those. And hope does not put us to shame. Some of your Bibles might say, but hope does not disappoint us. I love that. It does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The kind of hope that we have in Jesus Christ is not thrown around with suspicion like we hear people talk about. I really hope the Browns win today. <sighs> Please. I'm a little suspicious. But it's not the kind of hope we're talking about. It is a quiet, sure, confident hope, not because of what we do or have done or the strength that we stand on, but because of what Jesus already did, the victory he already did. We stand on that. I wonder, just as Jesus had reversed the framework of thinking around suffering, how easy it is for us to reach back into that same old way of thinking. I've sat down with so many people in grief and suffering and tragedy and pain. And it doesn't take long, especially for us in our culture, our society here, it doesn't take long for us to do our own spiritual diagnosing. To ask, why? You know, why, why, is, this, why is this happening to me? And then it begins to sneak in. I've heard it so many times. I feel like I'm being punished for something. I, I feel like God's doing this to me. I feel like I'm getting what I deserve. 
I feel like this is happening to me and we develop a cause-effect relationship between the suffering that we're experiencing and, and whatever else we think might, might be out there. There must be a reason for it. The Bible gives us a reason or at least a description and that is that it just simply is. It just simply is. Suffering is the thing that we all have in common. And some of you might be suffering more than the rest of us. But all of us, in some form, in some fashion, we will face pain, we will face suffering. And the scripture teaches us that we are all born into a corrupted world. That eventually we either are, we become victims and perpetrators of the brokenness of this world. And it is kind of how it is in this world. It simply is. But Paul is explaining to us in Romans 5, but that's not the end of it, nor does it define you. And I love Reggie Dabb's message a couple of weeks ago where he talked about, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're not meant to stay there. You're not meant to stay in the shadow of the, va- the valley of the shadow of death. We're meant to move through it, but we have to come to terms with the fact that we're in it. Hope's journey begins with suffering. The journey that leads to hope begins with suffering. So we're gonna start at that place, that starting point, as we progress in Paul's description of what leads to hope, coming to terms with our suffering. And that's what we find in the Tivity story as well. Now, I know many of you, uh, some of you unrighteous people decided to decorate for Christmas way early. But the rest of you righteous folks waited till after Thanksgiving to actually do that. And many of you probably set up your nativity scenes, your little creches, right? We did that as well. We have a nice one. Um, the kids love it. They love putting the, the figurines up there and telling the story. It was great this year, two-year-old saying, baby Jesus, baby Jesus, was wonderful. And in that scene, in that moment that we see all over the place, it really captures that moment of glory, right? That, that moment where the angels are singing, the shepherds are bowing, the wise men, even though we'll talk about that later, they didn't come till much after, but they're there too, you know, because we have to capture that moment of glory, that celebration, that moment of laud and awe and wonder, the, the, the celebration that where hope has arrived to us and it's worth celebrating. But we forget sometimes that this glorious moment This story began with an unplanned teenage pregnancy and the scandal that ensued after that. You see, hope, the journey that leads to hope, it has to begin with suffering and it has to begin with us coming to terms with our suffering. I love the quote from Uh, author, a 19th century author, Washington Irving, he says, there is a sacredness in our tears. They are not the mark of weakness, but of power. They speak more eloquently than 10,000 tongues. They are the messengers of overwhelming grief, of deep contrition, and of unspeakable love. There is power in the recognition of the suffering that we 
that we face. And yet time and time again, I'm convinced that we live in a culture and a society that doesn't know how to do that. I speak about this all the time when I'm sitting with families who have recently lost a loved one and begin planning funeral services. I say, you know, this service is important. It's important to have that ceremony, that service of remembrance where you can have that closure and you could say goodbye, but after that time, people are gonna go on with their lives and, and life is gonna go at its rapid pace that it, that it has its way of, of going and you're gonna find yourself not being able to keep up because as life is going at a rapid pace, all you'll be able to see is your loss and your grief that's sitting there right in front of your face. We don't do a really good job giving space for people that are in the midst of their loss and their grief. It's why I'm um, excited about ministries like Grief Support, Grief Share that gives that little space to say, you know, it's okay. It's okay for what you're, you're going through. I've mentioned many times that I was a missionary in Haiti and I realized, uh, recognized the contrast between our culture and our lack of ability to deal with grief and, and other cultures of the world. I had a teacher's aide that, that worked in my classroom. I was a teacher, fifth grade students, and I had a teacher's aide and she came in and explained to me that her husband had died and she was in mourning. That was the title, she was in mourning. And because she was in mourning, she wore a black dress not that day, for months, for months. And she could decide when she was done wearing that black dress. And that was her signal to the rest of the society around her that this is a person in mourning and that others should understand that and give space for that. And we don't have anything like that in our society, do we? Our culture, we just kind of expect things to keep going on. And it's not the case for so many people. So what I'd love to be able to do is offer some language of prayers that are scriptural, that are maybe beneficial for those of you that might be going through a, a time of, of suffering. Uh, the first um, way we can come to terms is, is praying a prayer called the lament. The lament. The lament just simply begins with, Lord, I hurt. Lord, I, I hurt. I have these feelings of hurt and sorrow within me, and God, I am giving them to you. I have found that the lament is so powerful. Number one, there's a whole book in the Bible, Lamentations, dedicated uh, to these, um, but one of the powerful things I've noticed about the lament is that I often look for a lament even if I'm feeling irritated, agitated, easily angered. You know what I'm talking about, right? You come home from a really bad day at work and you're looking for a target. And I begin to ask, God, I know that I'm expressing anger, but do I really feel hurt inside? So many of us express our hurt through other behaviors and actions anger, frustration. It's helpful to be able to release that in a prayer. Lord, I hurt in this way. These are the feelings that I'm holding. God, I am giving these to you. I hurt. Great example of this, uh, all throughout the Psalms, really, but Psalms 44, 26, 20, or 25, 26. We are brought down to the dust. 
Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. Do you sense the yielding in that prayer? No rush to solve solutions or create solutions. No rush to come up with action items of how you can make your problems better. It is simply crying out to the Lord, this is the hurt that I feel. God, I'm giving it and releasing it to you. That is the lament. It's a powerful prayer, and we don't talk about it enough, I think, in our churches. Another prayer that you probably have never heard of before is called the imprecation. The imprecation. The imprecation begins with, Lord, I hate. Now, I know that sounds really weird to lift up in a prayer, but it's littered all throughout the scriptures, and it's simply being honest in a moment of prayer to say, I'm feeling this anger and hatred towards someone or something. I hate it, God. Do something about this, Lord. I hate this. And it's okay. Some of you are like, oh, man, this is great. I'm going to say the prayer all the time. The imprecation sometimes, many times, is followed with a, a curse of some kind. You know, blessings and curses is opposite of blessings. And a lot of times, uh, the, the, the prayers of, of these prayers are wishing God to do something against their enemies, against their opposition, against the things that are attacking them and doing things towards them. And so they lift that up. I love a great example is uh, from the disciples who are, are with Jesus. And in Luke 9, um, what's happening here is that uh, Jesus is in the midst of his ministry and he goes to uh, areas in Samaria and they reject Jesus. They tell him they don't want him to be around. And so in defense of this, the disciples, they, it says this, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> Sometimes I feel that way. Just be honest, right? I'm sure you do too. Lord, can you do something about my boss? My neighbor? Right, you can't control what God's gonna do in response, but it really is a confessional prayer. It is the letting out of that anger and hatred and sense of injustice that you feel has been done to you. Lord, I hate this. That is an imprecation. And then another one that you're most familiar with is simply the confession. And it simply says, Lord, I've harmed. It's owning up, even in detail, how you have contributed to the harm of others. Now many times, all times, a sin is defined when you violate the covenant, the relationship, or the purposes of God that are set forth. But many of our sins also harm other people, do they not? And how oh, we hate that. We don't want to admit that part of it. We, we would prefer not to face the consequences of our actions. I can remember as a teenager getting into all kinds of trouble, just wishing that I wouldn't face the full effects of what I was doing in that moment. We're all like that. But it's so helpful and it's freeing and liberating to be able to lift up a confession to say, Lord, I've harmed in this way. One of my favorite psalms comes 
from a time of repentance from King David. Some of you know the story that King David committed murder and adultery. And the prophet Nathan knew he had to be really careful with David in, t- in revealing this to him. So he came up, this is such a typical prophet thing to do. I'm just a Bible nerd with this, but he comes up with this little clever story about someone who had violated his neighbor's sheep, had stolen and killed his sheep. And David is enraged by the injustice. And then Nathan said, you are the man. And David is humbled. He has no answer in return but his own repentance. And this repentance comes to us in Psalm 51, one to two. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Lord, I hurt. Lord, I hate. Lord, I've harmed. I wonder, what's, what's your prayer this morning? What's your prayer? Some of you, I mean, after even doing a little digging, you might say, well, I don't know if I'm in a place like that. I'm not, I'm not in a place of suffering or hardship. And, you know, that's great. I, I don't want you to have to dig deep to find something that, you know, enjoy. If you're on the mountaintop, enjoy that. But you know what? If you're on the mountaintop, and you're in a moment and time of season of celebration, you, are in a direct, you have a direct opportunity to stand and offer prayers on behalf of someone who is suffering. We call those intercessory prayers. Intercession means that you offer a prayer on behalf of somebody else, and that's powerful too. I can remember a friend of mine who lost a child. He was in deep tragedy and suffering, and I asked him what his prayer life was like. He said, I can't even pray. I'm exhausted. I'm leaning on the prayers of the people that have surrounded me. That's how some people are. Maybe there's someone that needs your prayers. What's your prayer this morning? Lord, I hurt. Lord, I hate. Lord, I've I've harmed. There's a few lines for notes on the back of your program. I wonder if we could take a time where you could reflect on this and Perhaps there is a prayer that the Lord would bring to your heart that you could lift up here this morning. While you reflect on that, Seth is good and the band are going to lift up a song that we both recently heard um, at a, uh, a memorial service, a, a funeral service. And the words were so striking, speaking to the the, the sorrows that we face, but the freedom we have in lifting them to the Lord. So I just want to offer this time for you to seek out what would be your prayer in this time? What would be your personal prayer or what would be the prayer that you'd lift up on behalf of someone else who is suffering? It's this time to reach into the suffering that we face that it leads us into being a people of hope. And the more that we suppress and distract ourselves from the sufferings we face, the more we hide them away from the Lord, the more we will be hiding away our, and stealing away our hope as well. This is the road to hope. So let's take this tough time to recognize what prayer the Lord would give us this morning. Mm.
Lord, from sorrows deep I call When my hope is shaken Torn and ruined from the fall Hear my desperation For so long I've pled and prayed God, come to my rescue Even so the thorn remains heart will praise you. Storms within my troubled soul, questions without answers. On my faith these billows roll. God be now my shelter. Why are you cast down my soul? saves you when the fires have all grown cold cause this heart to praise you and should this life be torn from Let's stand together in prayer. Oh, holy God, we stand before you and we hurt. We cry out to you in our loneliness, in our distress, in our pain, and in our suffering. Heal us, your people. Anoint us with a balm that restores us to a new place in you. Heal us, O oh God. God, we hate.
We grow tired of the injustices against us and the oppression on your people and particularly on the poor and the outcast. Lord, do something. Come to the rescue of those that need you in this moment. We lift and cry out to you, Lord. And holy God, we've harmed. We confess our sins before you, Lord God, as the beginning of repentance, a turning towards you. And in all these prayers that we lift up to you, God, we don't lift them out of our own sense of strength and ingenuity as if we are the solution to our problems. But Lord, we're desperate. We lean on you, God. We stand in great need of you, O Lord. And so as you teach us and shape us into a people of hope, a people of hope that shine light into the world that that does not have hope, let us do so not despite our sufferings, but through them and only by your power. Thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we uh, prepare ourselves uh, for Christmas, a few things I'd like to highlight for you. There is uh, some angel tree gifts uh, still left on the table as well as uh, instructions with the Salvation Army. If you'd like to provide a gift for someone in need over this holiday season. Um, If something today struck a note with you, on the 11th of December, it's a Wednesday evening, we're going to have a healing prayer service here in the sanctuary. Child care will be provided. That's 7 o'clock on December 11th. We'll highlight that again for you next Sunday. And then uh, Christmas Eve, it's always a wonderful celebration. You might, God might present someone to you to bring along with you, coworker, friend. We have three different times on Christmas Eve, two o'clock, four o'clock, six o'clock. It should be easy to memorize, two, four, and six. And we look forward to that time where we can celebrate together. And all of this, of course, is in great anticipation. So as you go, people of God, go being people of great hope that all of us have reason for, We have it in Jesus. Go in his name. Amen.